Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the story of two 11-year-old cousins who are genius detectives who hunt uh, giant robot bees on jetpacks with EMP blast rifles. It's a good time if you're a Batman fan, if you're a Marvel fan, if you like a comic book type of story with a whole lot of middle grade humor, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is for you, and you can get it for free, you lucky esteemed audience you. Uh, you can get it as a paperback or an audiobook, and I know you like listening to things because you're here. Um, those you have to pay money for, but the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Once you're hooked on the series, come see me with money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. And the upcoming third adventure to be released on June 14th, which is Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, a zombie story, uh, and The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel uh, about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is out there and nuts. If that sounds like something that might interest you, like I say, it's a five-volume serial horror novel. You can get chapter one, the first volume, as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Or if you check the back catalog, you can listen to me read chapter one to you. Uh, so that's, I think, at this point, about six episodes back. Check the back catalog, The Book of David, chapter one by Robert Kent. Uh, as always, to find out more about what's going on with the show, who our upcoming guests are going to be, as well as to read interviews with hundreds of uh, literary agents, editors, authors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in, as well as all of the past episodes of the show, head to middlegradeninja.com. You're going to have a great time. If it's your first time visiting, I'm almost jealous of you, of how wonderful a time you're about to have. Uh, so that is enough of that. Today, my I couldn't be more thrilled. My guest is author Claire Swinsky. Uh, Claire, how are you this evening? I am doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I am super excited uh, to have you. I'm sorry, it's Swinarski, right? Yes, it's very I, clunky I, and I Polish, so you did great. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably the, the, the best place to get started uh, is if you would... Uh, I never. I try never to summarize other people's books and other people's biographies because I'll mutilate both. Uh, and this is a rare opportunity where I've got a professional podcaster sitting across from me. So I'm going to try and let you do most of the talking tonight. Um, if you would give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure. So um, like you said, my name is Claire Swinarski. The clunky Polish last name comes from my husband who's from Poland. So we're, we're real Polish over here. But yeah, I am a middle grade writer and my first middle grade book, What Happens Next, comes out May 19th from HarperCollins. I'm really, really excited about it because the road to publishing like it is for so many people was, you know, longer than I had wanted it to be and a little bumpy. So now that it's finally coming out, even though it's coming out in the midst of COVID, I am still super, super excited about it. But I grew up in Wisconsin. The book is set in northern Wisconsin because it's a place that's near and dear to me. And I still live here in the Milwaukee suburbs with my husband and my two little kids. And like you mentioned, I am a podcaster. My day job is actually to run a podcast for Christian women. And then I also have Making a Middle Grade, which is a podcast all about the publishing process behind what happens next. So that's how I spend my very, very busy days. 
The good news is, esteemed audience, as soon as you finish this episode and you listen to the entire back catalog of Middle Grade Ninja, go straight to Making a Middle Grade. It's going to be right up your alley. It's, it's, uh, well, go on, let's start there. Tell uh, esteemed audience a little bit about the podcast. Yeah. So like I said, my day job is podcasting, but that's a very like unedited conversational podcast. And I really wanted to dip my toe into like a more highly produced show. And I was thinking of a way to let people into the publishing process, because I know when I first got an agent and first got a book deal, I was not super plugged into the publishing world. Like I did not have all these writer friends. All I had were podcasts and blogs that broke down topics for me and were really helpful. But I had some really dumb questions and I felt like there were other people out there who probably had those same dumb questions and just wanted some insight into the publishing journey. I think a lot of times people might feel a lot of pressure to make it seem like, oh, it's just rainbows and roses. Um, They want to seem grateful and that's really awesome, but I wanted to just show a little more of a behind the scenes. So making a middle grade is short. Each episode is only about 12 to 20 minutes and it talks to people like my agent and my editor and really walks through how what happens next became a book. So from the very genesis of my writing it to how the cover was designed to copy edits all the way to um, our season finale is going to be in June all about how launch goes, which I obviously can't do yet because launch has not happened. But yeah, that's kind of kind of why I started the show. And that'll that'll be the final episode. Or you think you might come back? That's a good question. I don't know. So I planned for 10 episodes. It does take a lot of time, even though it's short, because it is so highly edited. I might do another season for, I have another middle grade book coming out May of next year. Um, So maybe I would do a season two for that. But I think I'm just going to kind of see how things play out a little bit. Gotcha. So give it a little break. And then when it's time to start plugging book two. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was totally part of the podcast, too, is I had listened to a couple of podcasts on the making of books that I really liked. Um, Jack Chang had like, in on your bookshelf, I want to say it's called, um, or see you in the bookshelf, see you on the bookshelf. That is his podcast about making his book see you in the cosmos. And that really inspired me a lot as a cool promotional tool. Because I just, like I said, I'm not like in a writer's group. I don't know tons of writers. I'm out here in the Midwest. And I feel like people are reading blogs less and less and listening to podcasts more and more. And I was already a podcaster. So I knew how to make a podcast that I thought people would listen to. So yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see about a season two. I'll see how much energy I have. I'm going to go ahead and promise esteemed audience it's definitely happening. Look forward. <laughs> <laughs> it's likely. It's likely. <laughs> Ah, uh, so a question I, I came across in one of your bio, uh, one of your bios, that you are a proud Wisconsin Badger. So right away, I had to know what is a proud Wisconsin Badger. Proud Wisconsin Badger is born and raised in Wisconsin. Man, I grew up in Madison, and then I went to University of Wisconsin in Madison, so I didn't travel very far. I feel like most of my friends were like, I'm getting out of here. But then, that's kind of funny I say that, but most of them went to, like, University of Minnesota. Like, none of us went too far. But I stayed right in my hometown. And then after college, I actually did some mission work in New Orleans and Missouri. And so I was far away and I was so homesick all the time. Like I just belong in the Midwest. I had internships in New York and I've lived in different places. And every time I'm just always so excited to get back to Wisconsin. And I mean, I just love it here. We have a great state. We have great people, great ice cream, great beer. It's just a really nice place to live. So I have a lot of Wisconsin pride. And there's been some really good 
Wisconsin books out lately. Um, like Maybe a Mermaid was a really good middle grade book that came out last year that took place in northern Wisconsin. So we've got some Wisconsin pride in the middle grade genre right now. And are you able to connect with uh, with other authors there in the area? I know you mentioned you weren't able to get a writer's group, but do you see, are you starting to form relationship? Well, I guess you wouldn't be doing events. Uh, yeah. Right now, unfortunately, but. That's kind of the problem is just as I was starting, like just as I had some um, group things planned and some book festivals that were local, COVID kind of hit and brought everything down. My kids are really, really little. And so it was hard for a while for me to really get out because my daughter isn't even two yet. And so when she was a baby baby, I it was just hard for me to go like join groups or go to meetings or be away from her for too long. And now that she's a little older and the book is coming out, I had some things planned that obviously fell through. But I'm hoping once all this COVID madness is over, <laughs> I can finally start to connect with some people because I'd like to. I mean, I know there's a lot of writers around the Milwaukee area, which is where I live. Let's, uh, you mentioned uh, COVID and I forgot to state that I'd, um, it is April 24th that we are recording this. Um, I've, I've started doing this in the time of quarantine because the news moves so darn fast uh, that even though this will air in May closer to the launch of the book, we are chatting April 24th. So any news that happened after April 24th up until when you're listening to, we're not commenting on because we're not aware that it's happened. Uh, today is the day after the person who holds the title of President of the United States uh, potentially suggested um, injecting disinfectant or bleach as a po- and, and sunlight, mustn't forget that, uh, as a possible cure. Uh, it's also the date of quarantine. I, I finally gave into peer pressure and attempted Animal Crossing New Horizons for the first time. Most boring video game I've ever played. I, I, I deeply regret giving into peer pressure. <laughs> That's hilarious. I am not a gamer at all, so I have not tried it, but I have baked a lot of bread, which I know is another <laughs> quarantine have you watched, stereotype. Uh, Tiger King? No, because my sister watched it and said she thought it would like disturb me too much. So I've been afraid. She's like, you'll stay up all night thinking about like how bad the world is and you probably just can't handle it emotionally. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll skip it. Actually, it made me feel uh, extremely good about my life. Like, oh my gosh! It uh, look look at all the things, the terrible things I haven't done. That's <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> but I think that's the snapshot from time. Is if you're watching Tiger King while you play Animal Crossing and are baking bread, that's that's quarantine life. <laughs> quarantine 2020. <laughs> let's uh, let's start there. How uh, how has quarantine impacted your writing, your podcasting, and the launch of your book thus far? It's been pretty hard. I lost my child care. That was probably like the main tough part is I had two morning a week um, daycare at an in-home daycare. And we technically like by law, I think you can still do in-home daycares, but it wasn't 100% necessary. So we stopped doing that. And so that's been pretty tricky because I feel like I do my best writing in the middle of the day when I have that child care. Like I'm not a night owl or a morning person. I just like sleep all the time. <laughs> so when my kids were at daycare it was the best time for me to write. But now I'm just trying to rush through during their quiet time. I'm mostly doing copy edits for that book too. So that's kind of how it's been affecting writing. And then in terms of launch, there has been a few bright spots. It definitely was hard to cancel the launch party we had planned. And I had 11 school visits in May and June. I love doing school visits and I love kids. And so that was heartbreaking. 
but I'm getting to do some virtual ones, which I don't think I would have done before. And that's kind of cool because I can do them like nationally, wherever. And then we're doing like a, a launch party on Instagram Live. And the cool thing about that is I can invite people to be a part of it who never would have been able to come to like a real in-person one. Like my agent is part of it. And Sarah McKenzie from Read Aloud Revival, my one of my favorite podcasts, she's going to come be a part of it. And so that's kind of been a bright spot that I get to connect with people who are far away in a way that I wouldn't have been able to. But it obviously is really disappointing. I'm sure it's going to hurt sales, but there's also just nothing I can do about it. So I'm trying to just make the best of a tough situation. And I think that books are still so important right now, maybe more important than ever. I know that parents are really focused on getting books into their kids' hands. And I mean, not just my book, any book. I think it's great if kids are reading right now because my kids have gotten like so much more screen time than usual (laughs) that I've been buying them a lot of new books to try to keep them interested in stories and things like that. So it's had some upsides and downsides for sure. Well, I'm hoping that this will lead to uh, more reading than ever, uh, because there's there's only so much Netflix a person can ingest. <laughs> once totally. you once you've cleared you know, the shows you really want to watch, and then you're getting to the shows. Eh, somebody told me this was good, but I'm gonna have two episodes in, and it's not. And it's okay. Well, there's not as much variety as I thought. Maybe it's 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 time to spend more time reading, and hopefully we'll we'll be seeing um, uh, a renewed interest in reading across the United States. That's that's my hope and the world. Yeah, I mean, I have wanted to reread my like childhood Nancy Drews for years, and I haven't really had time to do it until now. And so I've started rereading them. But that's been a trip. Those books are from another time. That's for sure. (laughs) But they're still kind of fun to look back on and read. So yeah, I mean, hopefully people just are able to visit books that they've been meaning to read for a while. And Nancy Drew was a uh, sleuthing before smartphones. She she had to work for it. <laughs> oh, yeah, she did. What's funny about that those books is I guess I didn't realize when I was younger that, like, every single page they talk about how beautiful she is, and it just cracks me up. It's like every page, the slender, blonde detective. I'm like, okay, we get it, Carolyn Keene. She's a model, okay? We, we understand. Move along. <laughs> I, I forget. How old was Nancy Drew in those books? I think she was supposed to be like 17 or 18, but I mean, they were written in like the 40s and 50s. So there's some there's some not very PC things going down in those books. Oh, yeah. Lots of cringe moments. Yeah, they're still delightful, but definitely some, you know, women empowerment things that are a little questionable. Well, I read uh, you had a tweet because uh, I was, you know, scrolling through your tweets looking for all the information about you. So I'd make sure I had insightful questions. Uh, and I saw at one point you had tweeted out that you were having a, a rough day, which which happens to us all uh, during quarantine. Uh, and that that was your way to cheer yourself up and, and feel a little better was was uh, sitting back with those Nancy Drews. It was. It was. I feel like I've had some days where I feel like a rock star and I can get a lot done and I'm like, I've got this quarantine thing. And then there's other days where I just kind of let myself lean into the grief because I also don't want to paint too much of a smile on things because things are hard. And I think it's important to just allow yourself to acknowledge the difficulty. Yeah, books have always been a way that I've coped. And so that's definitely something that's been true for me during quarantine. (laughs) It's uh, certainly a better use of your time than I think I spent two hours before I gave up going into debt with raccoons and building an <laughs> island paradise. 
I can't express to you my frustration. It's it's the most boring part of video games. It's the traversal and then the maps and going through item screens. And that that's the whole game. There's no missions. There's no excitement. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really, like, an animal person in general. Don't get mad at me, people listening. But I'm like, I don't, I don't want to take care of an animal in real life, let alone in a game. So I just uh, don't well, think it's for me. had a, a badger, I mean, with your Wisconsin pride. Badgers are mean. That's why we're the badgers. Badgers are super mean. I definitely don't want to take care of a badger. <laughs> uh, and then I had read that you said you always wanted to be an author. So what is your first memory of wanting to be an author? When when did it start for you? Oh, man. Literally as long as I can remember. I mean, I think I was in kindergarten and I was drawing pictures and making up stories to go along with them. I was a really early reader. I started reading when I was four. And so ever since then, that has really been the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I have never strayed from that. And I think in college, I thought like, well, I'm going to study journalism to be a journalist. But always in the back of my head, it was, well, until I make enough money as an author, and then then I'm getting out of there. Um, That was just always, always, always my plan. But I think part of the reason I write middle grade, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is that those middle grade years were really, really foundational for me in terms of stories and books that meant a lot to me. I mean, I just remember like reading the American Girl books on my back porch and those Nancy Drews and just thinking like, all I want to do is write these stories. And I was always really a creative player, like with dolls or stuffed animals, I would like make up stories for them to do. I wasn't as into like I don't know, picking out outfits for them or whatever. I was more into like the friendship dynamics of Barbie and Stacy and like what was happening to them that day. So I've just been making up stories as long as I can remember. And that's, yeah, it's really just always, always, always what I've wanted to do. So I'm happy I get to do it now. I did that with Batman action figures. So I didn't, I didn't have to worry about what Batman was wearing that day. He's always got the same outfit. It's fun. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. The Joker's wearing purple. It's it's settled. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, do you remember? Um, I used to ask people there, what's your three favorite books, which is a terribly unfair question. And why would you only pick three in a whole world of books? But do you remember some of your most favorite books that really uh, spoke to you and inspired you? Yeah, my mom was a fifth grade teacher, so we always had a really great library at home. And I also would go to her school library on the weekends and borrow books. <laughs> she let me go into the library and take books, which looking back, I'm like, I'm not sure if that was allowed, but whatever, we did it. Um, but some of the <laughs> books that meant a lot to me when I was growing up were Anything by Sharon Creech. Um, the Wanderer is actually, I, I feel like one of her lesser known ones. I feel like everyone talks about Walk Two Moons, but The Wanderer by Sharon Creech was really important to me when I was in like fifth, sixth grade. Um, I really loved Out of the Dust by Karen Hess, which is like a historical verse novel about the Dust Bowl. That one was really, really great. And then, um, I mean, Maniac McGee is just a classic, but I, I still have that on my shelf and I still reread it. And I think why that one stuck out to me so much was just that I felt like it was so creative There was no other book like that. And even now, I'm like, I can't even think of what you would compare Maniac McGee to. It is so unique and so deep, even though it's for kids. It's just so deep and complex and meaningful. And I like that um, the author doesn't underestimate what kids are capable of thinking about. I was always um, really impressed by books that understood that kids can have really deep, complex thoughts and acknowledge that. I think that was also why I loved The Wanderer. 
So those were some of my favorites. But I mean, I could go on all day. I loved the Mrs. Piggle Wiggle books when I was really little, like second and third grade. Those are some of my favorites. And like I said, the American Girl books. And now I'm actually also rereading the American Girl books because I've been listening to the American Girls podcast where they're like reading each book. And it's these two historians going through each book. And it's been really fun to revisit those. But those were some of my some of my standout favorites for sure. And do you listen to uh, a lot of podcasts or do you try and get audiobooks in there? Is that a nice, healthy mix of both? It's a mix of both, but definitely leaning towards podcasts. When it comes to reading, I'm definitely like a physical reader. I don't like e-readers. I'll do an audiobook if I'm like on a walk or on a long drive, but I prefer a physical book. Specifically, I'd prefer a paperback. I have really strong feelings about this. Um, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Like I listen to podcasts on writing and books and history and politics and like all murder, all kinds of random topics. <laughs> well, I assume you have to keep abreast of uh, what's going on with the podcasting overall with the market. Uh, have some idea of what the competition's up to, right? Yeah, and it just kind of keeps me in the know. Like, I really like Print Run, which is a publishing podcast, because they're always talking about the latest publishing drama, and I cannot keep up with that kind of stuff on Twitter. It all just, like, moves too fast for me. So I like (laughs) Print Run just kind of keeps me in the know and, um, like, news podcasts so that I don't have to spend all day watching Talking Heads talk about the man in charge of our country talking about drinking bleach. And so, yeah, I like, I just like to, it's a good way to just stay in the know and learn in like a short time efficient way. Yeah. I've tried to limit my, my news. I try to read most of it. I still have uh, a weakness occasionally for pod save America. Uh, but I, I, I try to, so it's one episode a week. I don't listen to both. <laughs> so there's, there's only, there's only so informed I can be, beyond where I'm just wallowing uh, yeah. as opposed to knowing what's going on in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you like, don't have I, to I know, like, really you don't have to know everything that's going on in the world either. It's like, sometimes it's just like drinking out of a fire hose. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's probably just not healthy. Um, but, you know, I mean, we're the, we're the, the first uh, folks to, to really thrive in the information age. We're all figuring out how to do this together. Exactly. Uh, and then um, something else I wanted to ask you about uh, is you uh, went into journalism. Uh, you were writing for magazines. In fact, I, I saw that your writing had been featured in the Washington Post in 17, which is awesome. Uh, Milwaukee Magazine, many other publications. So how did you go about building those publishing credits? And then uh, follow up after that is how have they how did they aid you uh, when it came time to writing and, and, and securing an agent and everything else? That's a good question. Yeah, so I studied journalism, but like I said, that was always in the back of my mind, just like what I was going to do temporarily. And then I actually had an internship at a newspaper and really didn't like it. So after college, I was doing mission work and I was like, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do when my two-year mission commitment is over. So when it ended, I ended up getting married and moving back to Wisconsin because my husband was in school at Marquette University, which is in Milwaukee. And I got a job doing a marketing for an engineering firm. And look, no hate to the engineers. They are building our roads, okay? They are America's heroes. But I do not fit in with engineer culture. It's like a lot of slightly older than middle-aged white men with like monogrammed cufflinks 
and everyone just knows everyone. There's really no need for marketing because this is all like under the table handshakes. Like there's no point in having an Instagram. They wanted me to start one and it was just not the best fit to say the least. Um, and I had a couple of friends who were freelance writing and I was pregnant with our first child and I really wanted to work from home some way, especially because again, in the back of my head, I was like, well, I'm going to be an author eventually and I'll be working from home then. So I might as well just start now. And my husband had a great job with great benefits. So luckily we were privileged enough for me to be able to take that risk. But I thought I'm going to just start pitching some places and see if I can kind of build up a freelance side hustle. And then if that makes enough money, I'm going to leave my job. And so that's exactly what happened. I cold pitched places. I mean, I knew no one. I was just following instructions on the internet and I was in a lot of Facebook groups for freelancers. There's a lot of good resources on Facebook for people who want to get into freelance writing. And I will say this was like five-ish years ago. I think it's trickier now. I think that um, a lot of the places that were paying a lot for writing are paying less now. And so it'd be a little trickier to make the leap if you were like completely dependent on yourself for your income. Like we were, our family was in the position where like, I didn't have to make any money. Like I wasn't putting food on the table. I was um, mostly in charge of like child rearing while my husband was doing that. But I do love to write and I wanted to build up a portfolio. And so I just did cold pitches. I mean, I think my Washington Post article was probably like the fifth one I had pitched them. It was not like an instant called them up and they let me write for them scenario. And so I was pitching all kinds of places everywhere you could think of. Like, I think at one point I had a goal of doing 10 pitches a day to different media sources. And so that was really, really time intensive and it was fun, but it was stressful at the same time because you're just getting these little one-off articles and then immediately you have to be pitching more. And it was a really fun, interesting time. And I'm glad I have those now. I think in terms of getting published, I'm not sure how much they helped. I, I, I would guess they helped a little. You'd probably have to ask Alex, my agent, because like I put them <laughs> in the query letter, but I've never really asked him like, how much did that matter? We've never talked about that, but I have to imagine it mattered a little in the sense that he just saw it and was like, okay, well, this girl like must kind of know how to write if she's been published in all these places. That'd be my guess. Speak to your professionalism and your seriousness about writing, right? Yeah, I would think so. I'd have to ask him, but I'd hope so. I tell you what, Alex Slater uh, did face the seven questions at middlegradeninja.com. He's currently featured in the wonderful podcast, Making a Middle Grade. Uh, Mr. Slater, if you're listening, you are welcome to come on anytime. I will ask you uh, to your face, what does a credit in 17 mean when you're evaluating a query? I think that'd be a wonderful conversation. That would be a great question. Be a great question. Did you, um, I mean, in that work, um, did you, were there skills that in, in, in writing those 10 pitches a day and that in informing that discipline, you were doing that with the baby. Is that right? Yeah, I was doing that pregnant and then with a baby. <laughs> oh, God bless you. <laughs> yeah, it was, I think it taught me really that just the idea of deadlines and you have to be disciplined in your writing. And I think I learned really early on the business side of writing, which is good. Like I can't get too in my creative head because I have a deadline that I have to get this in by and it might not be perfect, but it has to be in. And I think that that's helped me in my writing career for sure, because creative people kind of have this stereotype, right, of being like loosey-goosey, fluffy, like, oh, I'm just talking to my muse. But if you're really like that, you are really going to struggle to make this into a career because you also have to be promoting your work. You have to be thinking of the next thing. You have to be controlling your finances, right? We're independent contractors. And so doing all that 
was super, super helpful for me. And I just think it helps with the idea of edits because I got turned down. I mean, gosh, like 95% of the time. <laughs> so when I get edits from my editor now, I'm like, this is not going to make me cry. Like I've been way worse than what you're telling me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a thick skin before you had you started the query game at that point? Or were you even writing middle grade? I was writing and editing middle grade at that point. And then, I mean, I was still, I was still freelancing until probably like two years ago. I kind of let it die. And that's mostly because my day job podcast um, got pretty popular in the Christian community. And so I was able to really focus on that. But my, my freelance career while I was doing that, I did start querying agents at that point. And so, yeah, I was doing both there for a little bit. That's uh, that's a full schedule. Uh, we're going to circle back because I've got, I've got more questions about how you got started writing, when you got serious, what your schedule looked like, all that fun stuff. But I know that uh, agents, editors, publicists, everybody involved with uh, what happens next is listening and saying, oh, my God, are they going to talk about the book? Yes, let's let's talk about the book. <laughs> so. Hello, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like I say, I never summarize um, other people's biographies, other people's books, because I'll spoil it. Uh, and you'll look at me like, did you even read my book? Do you know what my book's about? Why would I make you sit through me fumbling through it? That would be terrible. So if you would, please uh, tell esteemed audience uh, a little bit about what happens next. I'd love to. So what happens next is about 12-year-old Abby. Her parents own a resort in northern Wisconsin, and she is dealing with the absence of her older sister slash best friend. She's always been super close to her older sister, but this particular summer, her sister has been sent away to an inpatient facility for an eating disorder. And so Abby is dealing with that, and a scientist ends up moving in next door because this huge eclipse is happening that summer, and they their small resort town has been named as the place for full totality, the place to get if you want to see this eclipse. And so the scientist moves in next door and he has a problem that he needs Abby's help with. And so he invites her to help him find something very important that he believes is hidden in her town. And they kind of go on an adventure together and she deals with her grief over her sister. And it's a just a very sweet contemporary sibling middle grade story. So who uh, is the ideal reader for this one? I would say the ideal reader, well, the ideal age is between 8 and 13, but I would say it's any middle grade reader who really loves contemporary stories with big feelings. Those were always kind of the books that I loved growing up. Like, I was not a huge fantasy reader. I wasn't super into, like, magic. I wanted stories about real people doing real things. And so that is definitely an ideal reader for this. But also anyone with a slightly nerdy side, because Abby is a huge astronomy geek and she loves Star Wars. And so there's a lot of Star Wars talk in here. So if you do have a Star Wars fan, but you're trying to get them to maybe read more contemporary literature, this might be a good fit for that as well. And are you a strong, an astronomy geek who loves Star Wars? I am not an astronomy geek. I do love Star Wars. I enjoy I enjoy like learning about the stars, but I never got very good grades in science in school as more of an English girl. But I am obsessed with Star Wars. There's a new Clone Wars episode right now that I am watching after this interview. Can't wait. It's on Disney Plus. <laughs> so yes, I am I am a Star Wars geek. <laughs> When I uh, got frustrated with uh, Animal Crossing, I, uh, I, I, I loaded, it's, uh, we'll see how it goes after this, but I've loaded Jedi Fallen Order, so that's going to be an amazing experience. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, I'll tell my husband. He's a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, what's your favorite Star Wars? 
Oh gosh, that's a hard question. Honestly, I know, just straight to the throat. Oh my I god. I know. Um, I have like a weird answers for this. I think my favorite Star Wars movie is Rogue One, which is probably not a popular answer, but I love Rogue One. I love all the characters. And I'm also a new Star Wars fan. I hadn't seen it until three years ago. I hadn't seen any Star Wars at all. So I'm um in the modern era. But honestly, my favorite Star Wars thing is probably the Clone Wars, the TV show. I absolutely love it. My husband had to make me watch it because I was like, this is a cartoon. This was on Cartoon Network when it was on TV. Like, what? But I, the storytelling is so deep and complex. I cannot believe that that show is for children. Like, I'm not letting my kids watch that for many years. So, yeah, the clone, I'd say the Clone Wars and Rogue One. Kind of weird answers. No, how did you manage to go? Uh, how did you manage to grow up in the United States and, and avoid Star Wars? I think I had a really big bias against it because, again, I wasn't super into fantasy stuff. And so I thought it was like an alien story. I was like, that's not really for me. But then I got married to a man who is obsessed. Like, we, he goes to the Star Wars conventions. We have huge bookshelves. Like, the bookshelves behind you, we have two of those size full of Star Wars books and comics. Like, just Star Wars. He loves Star Wars Legos. The man just loves Star Wars. And so I, for his birthday one year, told him I would watch any Star Wars thing he wanted, like a movie or a show or whatever. And he showed the first Star Wars thing that I ever saw was a Clone Wars arc, like four episodes of Clone Wars. And it just blew my mind. And suddenly I wanted all of it. I like the prequels. Again, unpopular opinion, but we watched those. I read some of the books and I just fell in love with it because I think it's not really this space story it's just a very real emotional story that happens to be in space that's kind of how i think about it (laughs) that must have been just an incredibly happy day for your husband yes (laughs) yes it's very and now we've changed to where i'm like when are we watching clone wars when are we fitting this into the day (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i think that uh honestly the bias against the prequels uh, is from people that grew up with the original trilogy. If you don't have that, then they're, they're fine movies. They're yeah. about the same as the previous. Like there yeah. are parts that make you go, and the acting is bad, but that was true for the first three. Yeah. Well. And my husband tells me like when Star Wars comes out, no one likes it. Like he was showing me the bad reviews for Empire Strikes Back and then people loved it. And then the prequels came out and people were mad, but now people like it. And now the sequels are out and people are mad. He's like, people just get mad at Star Wars when it comes oh. out and they always come around. <laughs> I never get mad. I, I I was disappointed by Rise of the Jedi. That's the uh, only one that's come out uh, in theaters that I've only seen once. Yeah. And that was, eh, that was once was enough. I I, I get yeah. it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe I'll catch it again sometime. All right, back to what happens next. Sorry, I I, I couldn't resist. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so um, another question I had for you. We'll, we'll start with how long? Uh, what was the process of writing this book? How long did it take you to start to finish? I think that this book probably took me about three months to write and then three months to edit before I showed it to my agent. So I already had an agent because the book that I signed with Alex for did not sell. It was out on the market for about maybe like nine, 10 months and um, it didn't sell. And so we were talking about next projects, next ideas, and this kind of morphed out of a few different thoughts. Um, But I'm kind of a seed of my pants writer. I don't do a ton of plotting in advance. And so editing usually takes me just as long, if not usually longer than drafting. And so, yeah, I'd say total, it was probably about six, seven months. Gotcha. And that's with the seed of your pants drafting and editing total? Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
And did you have a pretty close to final version for submission at the end of seven months? Yeah, I don't think I did too many edits with Alex and we sent it out and then I feel like it went through more edits with my actual editor. We changed some things up, but like between me showing it to Alex and Alex putting it on submission, I, I mean, I don't think hardly anything changed. Did you have, did Alex have some input in the early uh, planning stages? Yeah, he did. Um, we talked about a few different ideas. I think I like sent him a document with a few different story pitches and this one was like, Something happens with a girl and this kind of crazy guy moves in next door and they go on some kind of adventure. <laughs> that was like my pitch. I'm very seat of my pants. And so I don't like to have a huge developed plot line to work with or it kind of stresses me out. I'd rather just have like a general idea or feeling and go from there. And I think he was like, great. Just I, rem I specifically remember actually, though, his input was originally I thought that Leo Lackmore, the scientist that moves in next door, I was going to make him like a movie star. And he was like, don't do that. Like movie star to small town is just kind of tropey. People see that a lot, like make him someone else famous, but not an actor. I just remember that was like his specific critique. <laughs> I'm just wondering, it's probably because uh, I'm, I'm projecting it, but I'm, I'm incredibly slow. And anybody that was with me as I was publishing each volume of the, of the Book of David and waiting for the next one forever uh, knows <laughs> how slow I am. Um, but seven months to me, that's that's lightning fast. So did having some of those things sorted out as you were going, did that cut the speed down or have you always been uh, a relatively fast writer? I'm kind of a fast writer. I, I do like to work really quickly. I'm not a perfectionist either, and so I'm very open to critique, and I don't really stress out and panic about things being less than perfect because I'm just of the mindset that everything is less than perfect, and I don't do um, beta readers or critique groups or anything like that, which I know people think is very strange, but Alex is the first person who sees my work when I'm done with it. That's like the person I trust, who I trust his judgment and his knowledge and his um, knowledge of the industry. And so I just kind of got it done and wanted his opinion quickly. And yeah, but I've, I've always been a pretty quick writer, to be honest. Gotcha. And I, I say quick and everything's relative. You're quick compared to me. I know Susie K. Quinn, who does in some days 10,000 uh, words a day, uh, yeah. is laughing at both of us seven months. <laughs> yeah, I've never done 10,000 words a day <laughs> in my life. So I try to do like a chapter a day. That's my goal. <laughs> so what uh, what does your writing day look like? Or what so, did it look like prior to quarantine? Because I'm sure it's yes. changed a bit just recently. Prior to quarantine, I really stopped most of my writing in my childcare time because I love to write at coffee shops. I love the ambience of like light chatter in the background. And I, the entirety of what happens next was written at the same coffee shop. They are thanked in the acknowledgments because I wrote the entire book there because they are around the corner from my in-home daycare. So I would take my kids and then I'd go to this coffee shop, write for five hours, go back, pick them up. And I really squished all their writing into there. I don't write super well at home because I just feel like I look around and there's a thousand things I need to be doing. So I kind of reserve the less creative work for at home. Be that like, I mean, I still freelance once in a while for people. So that might look like invoicing or writing about marketing technology or something a little more dull. Um, I do that at home. But now during COVID, I'm mostly writing during my kids' quiet time, which is from like noon to 1.30 and really just squishing it all in there. So it's been tricky. I'm really ready to get daycare, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
one of I've, I've got a six-year-old, and one of the most brilliant things I, I think I've ever done for my writing uh, is right before the start of quarantine, uh, I got I arranged to get a used trampoline for him uh, and set that up in the backyard, and it's you know it's got a net that we can zip up, so he just bounces around in there, uh, and I can sit up with the laptop on the on the deck and watch him. I love that you say that because believe it or not, I have been telling my husband how bad I want a trampoline and he's like, what? But my best friend growing up had a trampoline and we loved it and we would spend hours on it. And I'm like, I think trampolines entertain kids for a really long time. So I'm going to play this part of the episode for him and be like, see, trampolines. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Swinarski, if you're listening to me, think about how many more Star Wars comics you could be reading if the kids were on the That'll track. work. That's a good argument. That'll work. <laughs> good investment for you, sir. <laughs> but no, he gets up in the morning, breakfast, 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 jump, 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 trampoline, let's go. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Uh, and he'll go out there, you know, 30, 40 minutes uh, before he needs a break. Uh, and I think he's going to get tired. And we put balls out there. And I'll go out and I'll play with him a little bit. I'm not, I'm not abandoning my child for the entire 40 minutes. Uh, but, you know, 20 minutes can be a, a huge difference maker if you can type straight. In the summer, you should put the sprinkler under it. Have you ever done that? No, like but a, I will now. That's pretty smart. Yeah, me and my best friend love doing that. We're like, put the sprinkler up and the water just comes across. We spent all afternoon on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I will write a, I'll write five novels this summer. I'll have so much time. <laughs> well, it's, uh, something else I wanted to, to ask you about is about the research you had to have done for what happens next and, you know, writing about resorts, writing about anorexia, homeschooling, everything that you, you've got going on. How much research did you do and when and how did you do it? I did quite a bit of research, but it was pretty focused on a few topics. So my parents have a cabin in northern Wisconsin. And so I know northern Wisconsin pretty well. That didn't take a ton of research. The town is based off a real town that I go to all the time. And so that part was pretty easy. But some things I had to research a lot were... Um, ballet terminology so the main character's sister is a ballerina and I've never danced but I've always loved to watch ballet so I wanted to do something with ballet but just being an audience member doesn't mean I know anything about it like I don't know any of the moves I don't know um, how it works when you're trying to be a professional ballerina and so I actually watched a few documentaries on that specifically first position is a really cool documentary about kids who are trying to become famous ballerinas and whose like career goal is to do ballet and so that was really helpful but specifically where I did a lot of research was um, the eating disorder portion because I wanted it to ring really true And it was just important to me to balance getting the details right, but also understanding that mental illness displays itself differently in different people. And that was something I talked about with my editor because she wanted to have a sensitivity reader go over it. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. I agree. My fear is just that someone will show up and say like, well, that wasn't exactly my experience. So that's not right. And the sensitivity reader blew my mind. She was so intelligent and articulate and was able to really point out some things to me that I hadn't seen. And it wasn't at all judgmental of like, well, that's not exactly what happened. So you're wrong. But just like, oh, have you thought about you know, this or that. And that was very, very helpful. But even before it got to an editor, I had talked to a physician who works with um, girls who struggle with eating disorders. And then I had talked to two of my friends who have been diagnosed with anorexia and did inpatient care. And so there was quite a lot of research on that. And and I read some memoirs like um, Brave Girl Eating. That was one that I remember at the moment. 
And a lot of research went into that aspect of it. And I mean, I think that's one of the most fun parts of being a writer is you can just take topics that have always been kind of interesting to you and do deep dives. And you're totally justified. Like some people just bounce around on Wikipedia all day because they're bored. But like, I have a reason to do, to do this really in-depth <laughs> ballet research. So it was, it was really fun. And then I guess the only other thing I did some research on was astronomy for Dr. Lacamoire, the scientist. But to be honest, although Abby loves astronomy, she's also 12. And so, I mean, she's not talking like college level galactic things by any means and so that research was a little more light versus I was very passionate about getting the anorexia storyline just right and what uh, what tips do you have about writing about something that that is that serious but for a middle grade you don't want to you want to undercut the seriousness of that issue uh, but you also don't want to burden uh, your middle grade novel with with too much darkness um, yeah I think that it's interesting you say you don't want to burden them with too much darkness because I'd agree. I think that something that differentiates middle grade from other types of books is that to me, middle grade often points towards hope. And it was important to me to have the book point towards hope, have a hopeful ending, not necessarily a happy ending where everything is tied up with a perfect bow, but something that elicits hope. And so at the same time, I really wanted to make sure that I honor the kids reading the book and know that they can handle weighty, meaty topics. Like they don't just want to read about, you know, unicorns or sports or all great things. Love unicorns, love sports, but that they do want to read this this weightier material. And so I think it's about finding a balance and just um, being real with the kinds of things that kids are struggling with and how these topics impact them so like Abby also in the book is struggling with some friendship drama she's feeling ditched by a couple of her friends and like how does her sister's illness affect that how does her sister's illness affect this other relationship with her friend and really bringing it into these things that are affecting her on a day-to-day basis without making it total doom and gloom and without making sure that we're that we are offering that hope and that hopeful end I think that's really important for middle grade what, uh, what was it that made you want to focus on the relationships of these sisters as opposed to the all, all the other relationships you could have focused on? I have I have a lot of sisters now if we include through marriage, but I grew up with one sister and two brothers and my siblings are my favorite people in the world. They weren't always growing up, but they are now. And <laughs> I have always felt like the dialogue between siblings has come really naturally to me because my entire life was just drenched in my siblings. Like when you have three siblings, you're just together a lot. You're talking a lot. You're talking over each other. So that came really natural to me, especially the sister relationship. My sister and I are super close. And now um, both of my brothers are married. And I, um, my husband has a sister that I'm close to. And I just love that relationship. There's something about it that is so special, especially siblings by blood, right? Siblings from birth. It's like, you did not pick this person, but you have to probably live with them for like almost 18 years. And they're going to be in your life for, you know, likely your entire life. And you didn't pick that. And so it doesn't matter like how much their personality bothers you or their weird quirks you're going to have them in your life. And so I think that's just a really interesting dynamic to play with because you can ditch friends. <laughs> like you can break <laughs> up with people. And sometimes you should. <laughs> yeah, but your siblings are just there, especially when you're 12. I mean, maybe when you're older, you see like, oh, there's some 
unhealthy boundaries. I'm going to separate from a sibling for a while. But when you're 12 and your sister is 16 and 18 and y'all are in the same house, you're together and you just need to figure it out. And and that was a really interesting dynamic for me to play with. And I just think another thing is the fact that sisters can go from like hating each other's guts to the pits of the underworld. Just like I loathe everything about you to I would die for you right now. Like if, if we need to throw hands in a parking lot, I am here. Like what do you need? And you can do that 180 in a snap. And I think that's a really fun dynamic too that that comes out in the book. What kind of parking lots are you Wisconsin bad? <laughs> I'm just saying, one of my siblings needs to be like, I'm pulling up in my minivan. <laughs> uh, and then here's uh, on the surface, kind of a lazy question, but my original idea for the show was always let's make it the show I would want to be on to talk about my book and make it as comfortable as possible. So I always try to throw this out here. Um, what is a question that you wish someone would ask you about the book that you'd love to answer and hasn't been asked of you yet? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. A question that has not been asked to me yet. Um, I would say I really do enjoy talking about the town that the book is set in and not a lot. No, I don't think anyone has asked about the town. Um, It's set in a place called Moose Junction, but it's based off a small town called Boulder Junction in northern Wisconsin. And I picked Boulder because my parents have a cabin there and it is just a magical place, especially in the summer. And I loved writing middle grade in the summer because you didn't have to worry about the structure of school. You can kind of do whatever you want. Like she can just go do whatever she wants on a Monday morning instead of being like, oh man, she has to go to math class. And this town in the summer, it's like the weather is perfect. The smells are always of like fire and s'mores and beer and lake. Um, The lakes are so clean. They are like crystal clear. It is just such a special, beautiful place. And it was really, really exciting to write about Um, and to have it be very real. I mean, the gift shops I name are all real. The coffee shop is real. The hardware store. I basically just lifted this entire town from Boulder Junction. And um, I think it, it adds a lot of flavor to the book because we've had like small town narratives before, but I haven't seen a ton of like, up north vacation home type towns and what it's like to actually live in those. Although um, maybe a mermaid, like I mentioned earlier, that takes place in northern Wisconsin as well. And that's that's another great read. So hopefully we're going to have more start to come out. Uh, and as they do, Wisconsin uh, writers that are listening, please get in touch. Come on the show. We'll, we'll talk about it. Tell me more about these dangerous parking lots around the state. <laughs> <laughs> Where Claire's throwing hands for her siblings. <laughs> Well, there's just one, and it's outside Claire Swinarski's house. We can't figure out what's going on. <laughs> what, uh, with, with the town being so well-imagined uh, in your mind, do you foresee yourself revisiting it in future uh, stories? Yes, I do. Funny you should ask. Um, my next middle grade book takes place in my hometown, which is Madison, but there are some Easter eggs in there, and there's a few references to this imaginary resort town. And yeah, I'd really love to to write more. I'd actually also love to write an adult novel that sets there one time. I've I've never written for adults fiction, but I would I would love to write an adult novel there. So that's kind of a one day hope. <laughs> 
Oh, you, you mentioned that um, you're you're doing freelance writing at the same time you're pregnant and then you've got a baby. Uh, so at what point do you go from freelance writing toward uh, dipping a toe in toward middle grade writing? When did this dream you had of being a writer start to become when did you start to take steps toward making that a reality? So I think growing up, I always thought that I would write for kids because those are the books I loved. In high school, I was obsessed with Sarah Dessen, like every other high school girl. But I was like, I'm going to write YA like Sarah Dessen. But I realized really quickly, YA is actually not my favorite genre. I do love Sarah Dessen, but I do not love that many YA books. There's a few that I think are really, really phenomenal, but it's not what I gravitate towards. I really gravitate towards middle grade. I mean, when I'm walking around the library and I'm in the middle grade section, I almost just get emotional thinking about how much some of these stories meant to me. And so I wanted to try writing middle grade. And so, like I said, the first middle grade book I wrote didn't end up being published, but it did snag me an agent. So I actually wrote most of that when I was doing some mission work in Missouri. And then while I was freelancing in Wisconsin, working at this marketing engineering firm and querying, I was doing a lot of edits and overhauls of it. And plus, I had a baby in there, so that took up a lot of my time. But then I thought, I'm going to send out some queries and just see what we get. And I actually got an agent really fast. I mean, really fast. I think in like five days, I had three offers. Um, But that was a really great lesson for me because although I had these offers and I went with Alex and I was super excited. I got in my head a little bit like, oh, well, I got an agent pretty quickly. So (laughs) clearly this book is just going to skyrocket. And that is not at all what happened. Again, it went on submission for like nine, 10 months. And it's still a Word doc on my computer that I, I I do think still has some solid parts. So maybe I'll revisit it one day. But that was a really good lesson for me to just expect nothing because in publishing, it seems like so much is meaningless. And we like attach meaning to things that isn't really there. (laughs) So that was, oh gosh, I mean, I don't even know, maybe like four years ago now that I queried Alex, it was a while ago. (laughs) So had you already started the new novel while that was on submission? No, I hadn't. Um, I had mostly been focusing on my freelance stuff. I think I was, to be honest, I was pretty overly confident in that book on submission. I was like, well, it's going to sell eventually, so we're fine. And then it didn't. And that was really, really hard to hear. And I did have a little bit of a crisis, some imposter syndrome there. But when you've had a dream your entire life, like one book not selling isn't enough to crush it. It might be enough to like make you cry in your bed and eat Oreos and call your mom, but it's not enough to like completely make you give up. So I I was pretty quick after that to be like, all right, Alex, what are we doing next? <laughs> That's when I sent him a bunch of book ideas and kind of rocked and rolled from there. So since you're being so honest, how, how long did it take you to make that transition from devastated Oreo eating to productive and, and hopeful again? I don't think too long. I mean, I'm going to say maybe a week. Um, we have a pretty good rule in our family, which is that you can be upset about things for uh, not like major things. Okay. Like if someone's parent dies, you get longer than this, but if you had like a work disappointment, you get 24 hours to cry in your bed and eat your Chipotle and just grovel. Think all of those things that you don't want to think like I'm a terrible writer, poor me. And then you need to get over it and move along because um, your job's not your identity and being a writer is not like my life purpose. I don't think that. And so 
even if I never had a book published, I would be okay. And I knew that deep down. And so I think after a few days, I was kind of kind of ready to shake it off. And I, I mean, Alex told me, he's like, just because it's not selling now, it doesn't mean the market's not going to turn around in five years and we take it back out. And so, I mean, I still think that that could be true. I haven't deleted it, so still have it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should, you should never take an old book out and just like burn it in the backyard or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? that? That's your whole heart. Don't burn your heart. <laughs> What an amazingly healthy mental attitude. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous because I've been guilty of wallowing for longer than 24 hours <laughs> at times in my life. Uh, so what 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 is your, uh, do, you, do you have a firm idea of what your life purpose is? Um, yeah, I mean, not to take us to church, but I'm a very faithful person. And so I think well, that that, yeah, <laughs> that, sh- that, that really shapes a lot of my identity, I think is that I know that my life purpose is not to have any concrete work goal or to be, you know, a mother of seven or to to do these concrete things. It's just to be a daughter of a God. That's what I believe is my purpose. And so life can look a thousand different ways, but if I'm being a daughter of God and I'm striving for that and I'm striving to, to really be a saint, then I can handle a lot of disappointment. I mean, I'm not Claire the writer. Again, if I never wrote another word, that wouldn't take away from my identity or purpose. And I mean, I'm saying all this very confidently, but I also do have a book deal. You know, like when I was in the waiting, it's not that easy to remember that for sure. But I do have a great husband and a great community who remind me of those things. And so I think that's why I'm able to kind of bounce back. And also, I think just the nature of this business is that it is so up and down and your highs are so high and exciting and your downs are crying in your bed and it's just both part of it. And you have to realize that it's not like being a civil engineer, not to knock on the engineers again. I feel like there's an engineer listening to this who's going to be like, man, this chick hated engineers. Um, But it's just a very emotional job and those emotions can be high or they can be low, but you have to keep your perspective or you're just going to drive yourself nuts. So since uh uh, you you have a podcast about your faith. Um, how what role does your faith play in your writing? I think that my faith plays a huge role in my writing. Again, mainly it's that perspective of like um, that my identity is not tied to my writing, and that helps me when I get bad reviews or bad news or things like that. But also, um, so in what happens next, Abby is. Catholic and it's really not mentioned it's not at all like this huge storyline she mentions like oh and then we went to mass like it's a very normal part of her life and that was really important to me actually because I grew up Catholic and I really did not see a ton of books where kids mentioned going to church even though it was a really big part of my life and and not even like I wanted books to be about you know youth group or like priests or whatever but just in the sense that like I go to school, I go to the grocery store, I go to church, like I wanted to see church be a normal place. And I feel like a lot of times now when books involve church, it's either like a huge plot, like it's it's a Christian book, it's in the Christian part of the bookstore, or it's kind of painted as um, something that comes from like the author's own past or woundedness, or like they've had struggles and that comes on their book. And that's, that's amazing. If that's the story they want to tell and that's their journey, that's wonderful. But I know that there's now a zombie story is available now. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But there's a lot of people who that's not their journey and they want to read just about a normal Catholic family who just, you know, has 
artwork of saints on their walls and goes to church. It's like a normal thing. It's not super weird. And so I wanted to to just give it that sense of normalcy. But at the same time, it's definitely not a Christian book. Like there's, she's not in the book talking about Jesus, but she is talking about hope. And so to a lot of Christians, um, those play into each other. Sure. Can you foresee yourself writing a book that's more religiously themed? So I've written Christian nonfiction through a small publisher and I've done one book through them and then I have another one coming out in a few months um, through that Christian nonfiction. I don't know if I would do Christian fiction because I really enjoy the challenge of bringing hope to completely secular stories, to be honest. There's some good Christian fiction writers, but sometimes I think when you put like the title of Christian on it, like you know where it's going to be shelved. There's people instantly who are not going to want to read it. And you're just a little more limited, I think, in your options. So I, I can't super foresee myself writing Christian fiction, but never say never. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were to write for adults, uh, well, what is it that gets you pivoted toward middle grade? And what would maybe tempt you to write for adults? I have a few stories brewing around in my head for adults. I'm kind of nervous because I've never tried <laughs> to write for adults and it seems really different. But I mean, I think whenever I read a great book for adults, I then start thinking about like ideas that I would have for adult books. Um, like I really like mysteries. So I really like Laura Lippman. I, I just, okay, that's a lie. I don't really like mysteries, but I do really like Laura Lippman. Like she's the mystery <laughs> writer I like. All of a sudden it was like, oh no, he's going to ask me what other mystery writers I like. None. But I like <laughs> Laura Lippman. So like, I'm oh, none of that. Not, none of this so-called mystery. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a mystery poser here, but I like her. And um, I just think her prose is really, really beautiful. And so when I like read her books, I'm always like, oh, I should write an adult novel. And Deb Coletti writes young adult and some amazing young adults. She's a young adult author I actually love. But her adult books, they are so beautiful. You could weep. And I feel like I don't see them like talked about enough or like I don't even think they ever came out in hardcover. They've all been straight to paperback. And they are phenomenal. And every time I read one of hers, I'm like, I need to go write for adults. This is awesome. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I never understand uh, writers. I understand wanting to specialize and, and being the best you possibly can in, in, in one area. I think that's extremely admirable. But I have so many different types of stories that even when I say that, yes, I write horror stories for for uh, adult readers, yeah, there's there's some horror in there, but that's just an aspect. There's also a bit of romance. There's a bit of mystery intrigue. I want to write it all. Yeah. Uh, that was my original bucket list. Was let me write a story in every genre before I'm done. I love that. I totally agree. I mean, I I'm married, so I'd love to write about marriage and explore marriage in fictional storylines. But obviously, that's not something you're gonna do in middle grade. <laughs> so I. <laughs> yeah, I'd really like to write for adults. And um, another book I read that made me be like, I need to write about this age group is J. Courtney Sullivan has a book called Commencement, which is about four best friends from college in their first couple years after college. Like that age group is not written about very much. I feel like it would fall into that old idea of new adult that really flew away. And um, that's such a fun, interesting age group where so much is going on in people's lives. I'm like, man, I'd love to write a story about people right out of college. <laughs> Well, I think lots of those stories get written. They just get crammed into high schoolers. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. Something that amused me. I, be, I became a substitute teacher earlier this year um, before. Now, now, of course, I'm not doing it because of the quarantine. Um, 
now I'm homeschooling. That, 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 that has its own set of challenges. But um, when I went back to, to teach it for the teens, it would immediately struck me, like, oh, a lot of YA writers are full of it. Uh, anytime I read a YA book where the teens just hooked on coffee, thinking about coffee, like, no, that's an adult writer thinking about coffee. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I don't read a ton of YA. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> There's some great YA. I don't want to like completely bash on YA, but it's not. That's probably in my bucket list. That's probably like the last thing that I would write. I don't. I, teenagers kind of scare me. I'm not sure I'm ready to write for them yet. Well, I like YA. In fact, I think my next project probably will be YA. Just because of that experience, I, I didn't want to write it because I'd read so many excellent YA novels. But now I'm thinking, man, I've, I've read so many YA novels about really mature teens. Wouldn't it be nice to write something about actual teens? But I didn't see anybody being nearly that smooth. There were no uh, <laughs> handsome, uh, uh, pretty boys and uh, beautiful. There's a lot class- of acne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of acne, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of strange smells in the classroom. Uh, just a lot of awkwardness and a lot of uh, still in that that transition of adolescence that hasn't completed yet. Yeah, totally. Boom. Um, well, getting back for for all those uh, aspiring podcasters listening, uh, I wanted to make sure I ask you: How did you go from freelance writing to having a podcast? I think over half a million listeners uh, tuning in. Yes. So that, um, that was an interesting story. So that is, that's my day job. That's my faith-based podcast. And that podcast came out of a place of frustration, to be honest, seeing Christians not act, um, like Jesus, who we base our religion off of. And so I wanted to make a podcast for women who are truly interested in living like Jesus does. And so that's when I started that. And that was truly meant to be a creative podcast project like I remember using the words art project when I talked about it to people like my husband he was like what if no one listens to this I was like well then I don't know it'll be like an art project I did like a fun painting who cares but it did take off really quickly I think because there weren't a lot of people having those kind of conversations in podcast form in the Christian space in 2017 Christians are always like a good couple years behind everyone else in terms of like artistic technology things like that (laughs) We there were not a lot when I started it, and I think that's why it took off really quickly. Um, and so that's why when I was thinking about ways to promote what happens next, I was like, what is my skill set? What do I love to do? I, I love podcasting. I love one-on-one conversations like this. This is my jam way more than like speaking to a huge group. So I wanted to create something that really chronicles the process. And so that's kind of how those two got started. And it's really, I mean, I I just don't think it's that hard to start a podcast. It sounds really intimidating with the tech, but there's websites that will break down for you the mic to buy, the recording software to buy. It's, It's not that hard to get up and get going. Although I will say it requires like a little bit of a financial investment more so than like a blog. So that's probably the number one downside, but I, I love podcasts and I love podcasting. Are you a verbose conversationalist just in life? Oh gosh, you'd have to ask my husband probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm kind of a chatterbox in one-on-one situations for sure. Those are my favorites. I think in parties, I'm more of like a wallflower, but if I'm, like with a good friend over some margaritas or some coffee, I can get to chatting. Yeah. 
Now you've given me a wonderful idea for something I'll have to do in a future episode when I get real ambitious is I'll have to uh, do an interview with an author and then do an interview with an author's spouse. Uh, and then we can cut them back and forth and juxtapose what, what one thinks versus what the other says. <laughs> yeah, you can just info Chris here being like, yes, she's verbose. <laughs> I might wreck a marriage, but by God, we'll have a heck of a podcast to listen to. <laughs> if COVID didn't wreck a marriage, you can't wreck a marriage. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> what, um, so, okay, so you get you get the equipment, you get started, uh, and then how long does it take you? What What's your routine of, of posting before you take, I'm assuming it's not just like day two, oh my God, half a million views. Yeah, no. Um, I when we're so we're at over a million now. We're at almost two million for my. Oh, I'm working on podcast. really out of date information. Yeah, you know what? You probably got that from somewhere. I had it because I'm not great at updating my information. But uh, <laughs> how did we get there? I think that at the beginning I had some kind of big name people on, and so that was pretty helpful. They were willing to share it, and you know it took some time. It's kind of like a snowball effect. Pe- word of mouth is really helpful. People telling their friends. I focused really early on on having an email list for my podcast, and now I have an email list as an author. And I think email lists are one of those things that sound really cheesy, but if you're providing great emails and great content, people want to sign up for it and people enjoy getting it. Like I enjoy getting a few different newsletters from people. And so I focused on that, and that was great because it was a way of reminding people that new content was out. So I put a lot of emphasis on that, like more that than like Facebook. But I also think knowing where your audience is. And so for my day job, Christian podcast is called The Catholic Feminist. We focus a ton on Instagram because my ideal audience is like women in their 20s. So that is where they are hanging out. Making a middle grade, I focus a lot more on Twitter. And I'm over talking about there because that's where the publishing people hang out. And so I think knowing where your people are is really important too. And so how does that inform how you edit your podcast, how you create content specific for them then? I think that for making a middle grade in particular, I was just thinking like, what are the questions that I had when I was starting out? Like, what didn't I know? So for instance, that sensitivity reader thing, like I was really nervous about having one. And then after the experience, I was like, this was amazing. Um, And ditto copy editors. I was worried about copy editing. My copy editors were the bomb. They made the book so much better. And it was actually kind of a fun process for me. And so I thought, you know, what were the stumbling blocks on my journey from writing this book to to seeing it in a bookstore, which I mean, God only knows what I'm going to see in a bookstore because we're on quarantine. But that was kind of how I thought about creating that content. And then for making a middle grade, I wanted to make it shorter because I just felt like there there is a lot of knowledge and information about the publishing industry already out there. And it's important to me for my content to always be delivering value and not just be like more noise, Um, something that someone's already said, just kind of adding to like a pile of people's opinions. I want it to really stand out and be meaningful. And so sometimes that means um, just getting to the point. (laughs) And so that's why it's a little shorter too. (laughs) Well, the nice thing about that is once it's uh, all released, a, a person can sit down and just shotgun the whole thing. Yeah, can, I mean, wrap it up in an evening. Totally. There's another podcast about a book deal called um, The Cookbook Deal by a woman named Jessica Renan. And it's really similar to my podcast, but about making a cookbook. 
And her episodes are really short. And I think I did that on one long drive. I was driving from Missouri to Wisconsin. So it was like eight hours. And I listened to her entire podcast. And it was really cool. It was like an audiobook about the making of a cookbook, which I had no idea what that was like. And so, yeah, you could totally do that for making a middle grade. Do you uh, foresee yourself branching out and doing additional podcasts forever? Or are you pretty, pretty happy with, with what you've got going at the moment? I think I'm pretty happy with what I've got going at the moment. Again, never say never. I, I'd really like to pour most of my attention into writing books because that's um, really where my heart is and that's what fires me up. And I could probably spit out like 15 new book ideas right now and I just don't have any new podcast ideas at the moment. So I can't really imagine what other podcasts I would do, but that definitely doesn't mean I would never do one because, I mean, you never know when an idea is going to strike. Well, I've just given you one for free. I'm probably never going to do the author and their spouse podcast. Yeah, like, there you go. You <laughs> Clear talks Correct to writing spouses. <laughs> um, Claire Swinarski, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I am only chuckling because my father-in-law will be like leaning in right now because he lives in New Mexico and he's very into flying saucers, extraterrestrial things. I have not seen a flying saucer I don't, I don't, I think it would be foolish to say there's no life but us in the universe. I don't know if they would like fly ships around us. So I don't know if I believe in them. <laughs> kind of just duck the question. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's definitely life besides us. I just don't know. I don't know what they drive. Well, now I'm going to go to church. I always like to throw out the, uh, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you and also others who are, of, uh, other sheep are of a different flock, which which probably just means tribes outside of Israel, but I always like to imagine it's aliens. Hey, you know your scripture. You're on it. <laughs> uh, just enough to talk a little bit about flying saucers. That's it. <laughs> Uh, and then aside from the the newsletter, you say, is where you're focusing your main marketing efforts. Where where are you getting the most bang for your buck in marketing? Where are you focusing, especially now that you're transitioning to marketing in the time of quarantine? I'm definitely learning as I go. So if I say anything, don't take it as like, oh, this is working for Claire because I have no idea what's working. But I can tell you what I'm doing, um, which is that. I am reaching out to podcasts because I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so I know that people who would buy middle grades are listening to podcasts and I enjoy podcasts. I also think when it comes to marketing, like there's some stuff where it's like, if you're going to hate doing that, is it really worth the trade off? Um, so I don't want to do things I hate. I love podcasts. So I'm focusing on that. I have a um, pretty sizable email newsletter list and I really enjoy creating author newsletters. So I am doing that. And I'm switching my school visits to virtual school visits, which is very different and not as fun, but I think still good and important. And it's helpful to teachers, even if it's not like the ideal way of getting material across. I know that a lot of teachers I've spoken to, it's really hard to make a lesson plan remotely, especially for, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders. They are just not meant to sit on a computer for seven hours a day developmentally. So it's really difficult. And so I'm happy to provide material like that for teachers. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on. And then 
Also for my launch day on May 19th, we're doing like an Instagram live party all day. So I've got like a few different um, special guests coming on and we're going to do some kind of cool interviews. So like I'm going to do an Ask the Agent with my agent and I'm going to talk to Kelly Yang, who's a New York Times bestseller about her book. And so I'm just trying to keep things fun and exciting and remind myself that Middle grade is also like a long game. My agent likes to remind me for adult books, like when an adult book comes out, the sales the first couple of weeks are like really important and a really big indicator. But for a middle grade book, it can take like a year for, for word of mouth to really sink in. And so I'm trying to keep a bit of perspective as well. But those are the things I'm focusing the most on. And for anybody who's listening to this before May 19th, uh, they could they could attend your launch party as well, right? Yes, on Instagram, I'm at Claire Swinarski, and it's going to be really fun. I'm sure I'm just talking about it all over the place. Probably if you go over there right now, my last post, we'll be talking about the book. So. <laughs> um, I did want to ask uh, about your time management, um, because you, you've got the two kids. You've got the, uh, the book launch coming up. You've got another book a year later. I assume you're working on some project at the moment, in addition to the two podcasts that you're, you're maintaining. Uh, and the uh, the rapid growing Star Wars fandom. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you've got an episode of Clone Wars to get to. How uh, how are you managing your time and, and and finding ways to work it all in? When you say it all like that, I'm like, man, I'm impressive. I do do a lot. No, I feel like, how do I get it all in? Um, honestly, I, I do have a really wonderful husband who really thinks that my career is important and worthwhile. And so that's great because he is willing to do things like um, eat breakfast with the kids so that I can work in the morning. And so I find those pockets of time. Um, also, my kids get screen time, which is very controversial. But like once it's four o'clock, I'm like, mama's off the clock. We're turning on some Pixar. And so usually my kids watch a movie from like four o'clock till dinner. And I always write during then. But I think just like some practical things I do that are helpful are I am not a perfectionist, especially like a first draft or first round of edits. I really give myself permission to just not be perfect and just get something down because it can always be fixed later. And like I have an editor and her job is to help me make the book good. And I'm not going to give it to her. She is never going to send it back and be like, this was perfect. So I just really divorce that idea from my head and just try to stay focused that way. And then I also purposely make chunks of time or even whole days, like creative days, or not so creative days. And so creative day for me really means like writing fiction because that just requires a certain mindset and a certain kind of zone versus on a non-creative day, I can schedule podcast interviews for my day job. I can um, send out invoices to freelancing clients or even like making Canva graphics, which is creative, but doesn't require the same amount of brain power for me as fiction writing. And I found that like batching my days like that is super helpful because I'm not losing as much time like getting amped up to write. I'm just the whole day is like, this is a writing day. I'm not answering emails today. No one's going to die if I don't answer their email today. Um, no one's going to die if I don't respond to every single Instagram comment today. Tomorrow will be like a practical, non-creative day and I'll get it done then. And then I'm also, one last tip, the free program that I'm obsessed with for scheduling is Trello. Have you ever heard of Trello? 
I've heard of it. Yeah, I use that for planning out my days. There's a, if people are interested in learning more about it, there's actually a mini course you can take called Trello for Business. If you just Google it, it comes right up. But it's honestly, you don't even need that. It's not that hard. But I just use that to make lists within lists of what I want to do each day. And that tool is like very important to my day. Like, if Trello's down ever, I flip out because I'm like, I have no idea how to live. I don't know what to do today. My list is gone. Um, so I'm obsessed with that. So if you need an organizational system, I highly recommend Trello. My uh, last question is uh, always some variation of if there was something you could go back and tell yourself uh, at the start of this when you're when you're getting ready to, to get serious about middle grade and get involved what uh, what's one or two bits of advice that would have made a huge difference for you that would make a huge difference for all the uh, authors uh, working right now? I think one thing that is helpful to know is that no one cares about your writing career or your book more than you do. And so you don't need to apologize for advocating for it, be it like, asking for things from your publicist or like, um, you know, deciding which edit is really important to you to give a little pushback for. Obviously, you don't want to like every page be like, no, this is wrong. But if there's something really important to you in your book, um, you can advocate for yourself and, and don't be afraid of doing that. It's your book. It's your project. Your name is on the title. Like the editor, your agent, their names are not on it. It's yours. And so don't be afraid to be your best advocate and take yourself seriously in that way. I think a lot of times when people are first starting to query, the power structure just really puts like authors at the bottom in some ways, but you are the creator of the work. And so, yes, it's a team, but you need to be able to unapologetically advocate for yourself. I think that's really important. And then also um, getting involved in like your debut group early, I think has been great for me because like I said, I'm in Wisconsin. Um, I don't have a ton of writing friends. My friends are all like doctors. I'm like the dumb one of our group. And so they're really, really wonderful for perspective. Like I said earlier, but they're not wonderful for like, wait, how should I be marketing my book? Like they don't know. So having a debut group and joining like your debut Facebook group, and uh, following your debut Instagram, like that kind of stuff is just really helpful. I know, like, for instance, when I got a less than positive review, I had so many authors that I did not know who owed me nothing, sending me messages that really uplifted me about their own experience with harsh reviews, or um, just, you know, being there with each other, being in solidarity has been really helpful. And I don't think I realized how important that was going to be. I think I thought to myself, like, like, Writing is a very solitary activity and those people are competition, but that's not true. Authors can really help build each other up. So I think get, that would be another tip is just get involved with um, your debut group as early as you can. That is excellent advice. I'm tempted to make a comment about how doctors might save lives, but middle grade authors will go on inspiring lives for generations to come. But you know what? In Back. the time of quarantine, not doctors. <laughs> We love doctors. <laughs> we love doctors. God bless all the medical professionals working so hard right now. Uh, Claire, where uh, can the esteemed audience find you online, find out more about you? You can find me at ClaireSwinarski.com. I know it's a long, chunky name, but it's probably in this podcast title, so it's easy for you to find. And all my social links and where you can buy what happens next, all that, that's all on my website at ClaireSwinarski.com. And you can listen to Making a Middle Grade wherever you get your podcasts.
you could subscribe to it right now. And as you're, as we're ending, you could immediately uh, start making a middle grade and make a whole day of it. You'll have a wonderful time. Uh, <laughs> As always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Um, Claire, thanks so much for uh, making the time this evening. This has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. This was a ton of fun. And esteemed audience, if you would, uh, make sure that you're subscribing. And if you have the time, leave a review. That helps me out. That helps the show out. That would be tremendous of you. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we'll see you next week.